Jesse, very excited to hey. have you to come and chat with us. Um, you're, I mean, you're going to be too modest here, but I'm going to introduce you as the inventor of boot camps. Okay. I'll take it. <laughs> uh, do you think you can walk us through the like the early days of Dev Bootcamp, how you got involved and uh, what that what that process was like? Because as I understand it, basically this hadn't been really done before or maybe maybe it had in some uh, manifestation that uh, you were aware of at the time i'm not sure and i'm assuming uh, you had but... a you had a military background <laughs> well i didn't name it um i had just left uh, everlane which was a company i i also co-founded i was there for a little over three years um and I knew I wanted to do something in education. And uh, how did that happen? I was talking with Heaton Shah, who was running Kissmetrics at the time. And he said, hey, there's this guy, Sharif Bashay. He's thinking about doing this in-person boot camp or whatever. He described that boot camp. And that format, that structure was on a short list of things I was interested in. So I talked with Sharif immediately. And we hit it off. Uh, there was a, th a third guy involved, Dave Hoover, who wound up running Chicago eventually. But, you know, it started the very first cohort. Uh, it was filled. Let me think. I can find it even. It was a post on Hacker News. So Sharif posted a note on Hacker News saying, come to San Francisco. We'll teach you how to code. And I forget what we promised then. Nine weeks, 10 weeks. and off to the races. It's the first thing I've, I really the only thing I've ever done that worked immediately in that way. Mm -hmm. And there were a few programs we knew about that were somewhat similar, some of which we were close with the people involved. So um, I always, I always forget their name. It was a big, it was the biggest group on competitor at the time. Oh, General living, Assembly. Is that the living Social. Living Social. Yeah. Living Social. There we go. Living Social. Uh, and they had an internal boot camp called Hungry Academy, which was run by, uh, oh my God, I'm blanking on the name. He's he's the he's the head of Turing Academy now. Uh, we can ask we can ask Google later. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. I feel bad because uh, we were in contact with him, and that was more about internal transfers. Like you're a mar you're in marketing, we'll train you to be a software engineer, that sort of thing. So. I would say that was the thing that was the most structurally similar in terms of the program. And there was another uh, in-person program based out of Chicago, which I forget, it changed its name two or three times, but it was originally called Law, um, uh, Code Academy. And it was a lawsuit with codecademy.com, which uh, that company got their, their trademark invalidated. <laughs> So they had to change their name and, but they eventually they pivoted to being more pure engineering, but originally the pitch was more, you know, we're going to find people to uh, non-technical people to give them enough technical skills and marketing skills and business skills to get an MVP off the ground. What made you think that this could model could work? Did you have experience with hiring people like this and training them up at, um, in previous roles? Um, I mean, I've always been, one of the reasons I wanted to do education, well, there were two reasons. The personal reason is I found a, in my first job after out of college out here in the Bay Area, when I was bored, <laughs> I didn't even really know why or whatever, but I, I would put up tutoring services on Craigslist. So it's like, I'm bored. What should I do? I don't know. I'll go tutor people on the weekend. Um, and then the second thing was the fact that inspired in some ways by the rise of MOOCs and things like Codecademy, uh, a feeling of, like at the time, remember this is like 2012, that's when we started this, late 2011. Everyone's talking about how MOOCs are going to replace universities and blah, blah, blah. And that's... I mean, it was obvious to me that's not, um, the MOOC wasn't going to cut it. I mean, people don't go to MIT because they have the best textbooks. Um, and so 
but what it proved to me or demonstrated to me is that maybe there was an opportunity to do something where you were actually the students were the customers. Because before that, if you wanted to do something in, in air quotes education, you weren't really, the core competency was rarely pedagogical or educational. I mean, you were basically a sales company. You're mm -hmm. like, your, your job was to be good closing deals with districts and district administrators. And that's not something I'm good at, not something I want to get good at. So all of those things kind of pointed to maybe there's something more. And honestly, I mean, the, the launch of it was a bit of a lark. Just kind of like, I think we can do this. And did you have a curriculum then, already? Or it was like, let's the, launch this and I'll figure it out. <laughs> uh, as we Well, go. it was definitely more, we'll launch this and we'll figure it out. So yeah. the first cohort was really rough curriculum wise. We uh, cobbled things together. We used the Hungry Academy people had some open source stuff we used. And uh, Jeff, I think his name was Jeff. And he was an advisor. So he was, it's not like we took his stuff and we're using it without his knowledge. He was helping us make good use of it. And then between the first and second, so that first year, the structure was basically 10 weeks on, 10 weeks off, 10 weeks on, 10 weeks off. Like we alternated like that. So big block classes. And uh, between the first and second cohort, I decided Sh Sharif didn't really want this, but I just did it. Uh, we made our own curriculum. So at, from that point forward, it was all our own, our own writing. And I mm. guess for the people, for the people listening, that was mostly my role was, I would say, I mean, I think my formal title was chief academic officer, uh, but designing the overall learning experience and managing the small team that was building the internal learning management system. So I'm I'm very interested in this just because it kind of set the stage for uh, I wouldn't say derivative boot camps necessarily, but there was a there's an inspiration from the model that um, let's just say the DBC legacy lives on in in different ways. Uh, what did you feel was your kind of design space? What what were the major design decisions that you felt you had to make? You did make oh. in that process. Of, of building a program mm -hmm. well I th there's a real pressure in that environment to teach to the test so to speak and everyone assumes that's what you're doing like you're just cramming people to ace an interview and then you wash your hands of the student and i i certainly while i was there acted as a bulwark against any pressure to do that to the best of my ability um, and I mean, so that was, that was always a constraint. Like we were never going to violate, um, you know, we knew we wanted, and it's a lot, it was a lot easier than it wasn't easy, but it was easier than to hire staff who had real experience. So the, the technical experience of our teaching staff was pretty substantial as people who were like former senior software engineers and. VPs of engineering and things like that, people who had really run teams. Um, and to get what we needed to get out of it, I mean, really the, there was this incredible sensitivity to the opportunity cost of every little moment of the experience. So you, sometimes the way I phrase it is, you know, it's not enough to kill two birds with one stone. You have to kill 10 birds with one stone, like every chance you get. So uh we knew we had to make conscious use of the fact that the students are here together there's a social environment uh like we're leaving leverage on the table if we aren't facilitating interactions between students in a productive way not just like okay we're all about peer programming here's a lecture on peer programming from now on your peer programming and then not really talking about it again um, and also making uh, as much use of the built environment as we could, I would say, and trying what, to. What is, what's the built environment mean? Uh, like the like the physical space. Okay. Like we were pretty intentional about 
the arrangement of the materials and how students came and went during the day and what opportunities that afforded and uh you know okay we have to make sure if we're having a sidebar conversation it it, it happens here and um eventually we switched to a rolling cohort model which some other program started where it was like three it was a nine week core nine or 12 week core and there was divided into three week chunks that we called phases and in every three weeks a new batch of about 20 students would come in it's like um row 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 your boat yeah yeah and there are uh, pros and cons to that but it meant you know there was a sense of tides coming in and tides coming out into the space and like for for example i guess just like a specific example uh the very first thing students experienced was 9 a.m on the monday when a cohort started the doors are locked they're all gathering up outside they're all nervous they're like what are we here what are we doing are we in the right place i don't know i knocked someone stuck their head out and told us to wait we don't open until nine <laughs> i'm not sure blah 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 and the staff sort of lines up and the students once we did rolling cohorts because there were students there a kind of single file two lines a sort of human hallway the doors open and everyone's like applauding the students as they walk in single file and so it was very much you know okay what's happening in the first 30 seconds that is going to simultaneously confound any like maladaptive expectations they have about the experience. Oh, I wonder if I have a desk. I wonder if I have an assigned seat. I wonder if this is going to be like my college class. I wonder if, and um, and also kind of drive home the energy of the space. So we I carried that. that. I was just going to say, I love that because it reminds me of that, like going to university, there's this, uh, there's this sense that people have been here before. This is a place of like respect, respect for knowledge, respect for each other, respect for your fellow students and your teachers. So having some sort of ceremonies like that, it always put me in the space of, okay, let's, let's get this thing going. This is a, this is a place I'm meant to be. So it's really cool that you thought to do that. Yeah. I mean, every, every day, right. We would always bookend the day there were, there were like starting rituals and ending rituals and it, it helps set the container of the experience and it, and it makes it easier for us to say, I mean, we tell students we do our best to scare them off if this is something that would scare them off but say you know you need to think of this as like a meditation retreat in bhutan or something i mean that's really how you need to be thinking about it tell your friends tell your family you're not going to have time to chit chat realistically especially during the day and having those rituals where you enter and leave helps uh yeah set that stage and force that boundary can I rewind for a second? Just something that's on my mind is that this era, this 2012 era, I just recall that like with the MOOC spirit, it really felt like education and ed tech were this, it, it, that was like the crypto of that time. Like people are talking about it. It felt like, <laughs> it felt like uh, things were changing. And I remember I, as an aspiring software engineer or thinking that maybe I could be, was doing some of these MOOCs and yeah. not doing very well. I remember I, I made a decent amount of progress with Steve Huffman's something or other or he was teaching oh yeah yeah he was he was engine. yeah yeah because he was a, he was a mentor at um the boot camp yeah and yeah so i remember him telling stories about having to go to stanford and they're filming him and yeah it was uh yeah coursera i think early coursera. totally yeah and they, they kept yeah. cropping up and then they're like khan academy rolling out it just yeah that was a good era i liked that yeah. era and I, I i want that era to return <laughs> um yeah, there's a lot going for it. I think you're right that they, I mean, this is part of what inspired, there was a, there was a reactive element to starting that bootcamp where it was like, okay, MOOCs aren't it. Mm. Like, I'm sorry, pre-recorded lectures aren't it. I think you, I mean, what it felt like, and I don't know that we've actually advanced past it is, uh, you know, early, early movies were stage plays put to film and the medium wasn't really explored yet and so at least if we're talking about MOOCs and we're talking about online learning you know there's the whole design space that uh like the conversation barely gets beyond online learning it'll be about personalization and 
asynchronous this and accessibility and that's about where the conversation ends uh yeah. and in a, what is it well it's you get to watch a lecture and then, then you get a quiz <laughs> so from like up to this point even now is is the physical presence do you consider that to be continuing to be a key part of the pedagogy for learning this no not necessarily i mean i don't I always thought of all these things as just a, just another constraint. So like it's, I've taught online. I mean, I've spent most of the last five years teaching online and there are elements of it. I would say on the whole, it is harder to um, get access to certain like highly leveraged activities and create the kind of cohesive overall experience when you're doing things remotely. Um, but it's not impossible. And I see it as just a kind of just another constraint, you know, fine. There's a bunch of resources we would have available to ourselves if we were doing it in person that we don't necessarily have available when we're doing it online. And there are some resources we have available because we're doing it online that we wouldn't otherwise have if we were doing it in person. I, I, that said, I do think on balance, that transition, you give up more than you get generally. Um, and I, I think people who don't feel that, uh, try to say it nicely, I guess. I think they basically, they just don't, they don't know what to do with, like, they don't see the fact that you have 20 students in the same room at the same time, focusing on roughly the same things as an opportunity to do really powerful leverage stuff. Uh, and if they, like most lectures, most classes I was in in college didn't take advantage of that fact at all. It was pretty much like, it could have been just me in that lecture hall, or it could have been me with 50 other people in that lecture hall. And it wouldn't have made a substantial difference in terms of how the experience played out. So if that's your idea of what a learning experience should be like, then of course, doing something online seems like only upside and no downside. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, it's a lot of tiny things, even, you know, I'm, I'm a tall guy and I have a kind of flat affect and, uh, a lot of my getting a room of students to loosen up and laugh has to do with my physicality and that's very difficult to do online. Yeah. So if you stood up right now, I would, you would not be scary. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> It's people just can't tell. I mean, even when I meet a student I've only taught online, they're like, holy crap, I, I'm not that tall. I'm like six two. Okay. Okay. But uh, you know, a six two guy with a voice projecting. Like, look, okay. So for the last few years I've been teaching college students. And in that structure, part of what we had them doing every Friday was giving some kind of demo or presentation, some public speaking activity. And there's a big difference between me standing up in front of the room and and showing them what projecting means like full chest you in the back rachel you know shouting something that's maybe a little bit nonsense but but intentionally being unselfconscious about it you can't really do that online in the same way yeah and you shouldn't because you'll blow the speakers out unless you have <laughs> unless you have your stuff set up Correctly. If I could, so, if I could tell a brief aside on this, yeah. it's an embarrassing personal uh, story. I did mock trial in high school where you sort of get this case and it's a competition mm -hmm. and uh, whatnot. And we, we eventually compete against other schools. And my nervous tick is to get really loud. And I get really, when I get nervous, I get louder. And so in high school, we were in a real courtroom. And so my teacher advisor said, stand in the back of the well and then just do what you do, get nervous. And people think this person is extremely confident. They're really good. <laughs> I did it in college. And instead of in a courtroom, it was in a tiny little classroom. And so, and our team was just getting destroyed. And afterwards, uh, we just gotten like, at the end, the, the judges who are these probably like hungover local lawyers will rate you and they, our team got killed. But he called me up to the the bench and and said, look, and I'm walking up expecting this person to say, look, you're a rare talent. You're surrounded by a bunch of losers. Uh, and he uh, he's like, look, I, I needed to ask, like, do you have 
do you have a problem controlling your voice? Like, is there, is there oh, like, no. some, and I, I didn't have the presence to mind to be like, what, but it was, it was terrible. So, um, yeah, I'm all, I, I, I see I'm talking loud now. It's just, this is just, <laughs> this is my failure mode. Well, yeah, it doesn't, I, I guess. Yeah. It's, that's a funny story. Um, and it's just, I guess, to me, an example of a kind of a whole dimension of activity that it, it you can't translate in a straightforward way to uh, doing something online. I mean, maybe there's some analogous way of doing it online, but uh, like there's something to having a person who has never raised their voice above whatever five decibels actually don't really know what quiet is on decibel scale, but someone who's a quiet person coaxing them to say something really loud, loud enough that everyone in the back can even hear them and watching them do that for the first time. I mean, if you're doing it online, but people would be annoyed probably like, why are you shouting in the next room? Please stop. Right. What I really miss about teaching, uh, in, in person, I mean, you, you guys know, I've been teaching online maybe almost three years now um and the the in-person experience that i love most is when students are working actively on something and overhearing one another just a little bit like they're they're focused on their thing but also mm -hmm. other students are working on things i'm working around uh, walking around asking que asking questions they're asking me questions and there's this like ambient kind of um leaking of experience from one group to another yep. that has effects that you just can't simulate on zoom like when i was trying zoom rooms i was like this is okay but i want the audio to leak like <laughs> i don't want it to be such an isolated thing where you move from one room to another you know there, there are things like that that are hard to articulate or hard to even realize uh how much value there is in it until you've lost it uh, so that kind of that kind of thing would be great to try and recreate uh Again, just to move the constraints a little bit in one direction. But. I, I love that too. Even when I was at Hack Reactor bubbling around and like, okay, I'm working on this group project, but then I hear someone like, oh, people are shouting over here and we all kind of crowd around the machine and someone's figured out something awesome. And then we come back and try that. Yeah. And uh, that was a huge part of it for me. Yeah, like you can't, you can't stand up in the middle of the room and go, Hey, everybody, Charlie's figured something out. Everyone go over to his computer right now. You know, maybe you're being uh, whatever. I don't know what you're like, but I might do this to a student who did something great and is being a little sheepish about it. Yeah. And then I, in my big voice, get everyone in the space to come over and crowd around this person right away. I mean, I don't know that. Like that pays dividends, not just in terms of the mechanics of like, spreading that information around, but in terms of that person's self-identity as a learner <laughs> and their own sense of like their capabilities. I remember in third grade, we had this teacher, it was very common where they, for whatever reason, I don't know how this was a learning uh, activity, but there'd be a chapter we'd have to read out of our book and each kid would read one sentence or one paragraph. And I think our teacher one day said to me, Charlie, you know what? You're doing a good job. You read the rest of the chapter. This was the greatest honor I had ever received from this point forward. I loved reading. I knew I was a good reader. And those little moments do make a huge difference. Yeah. It's honestly, having done remote work and in-person work, it's, it's analogous in the sense that all of these implicit things you have to go out of your way to make explicit. And you can't make everything explicit, like a list of the 832 implicit things we do is actually not a useful list at all. <laughs> it's just confusing. Um, and it still doesn't fully capture it. And it's it's the same problem. I mean, I think there are ways around it, but I, no soft, the high level thing I, the way I've always thought about it is what gets erased when you go online is like the periphery, the per, all the periphery goes away. Um, I can't see someone fidgeting out of the corner of my eye anymore. I can't uh, ask for 
a spot track and you know just at a glance see how many people have raised their hand anymore i can't all of that is erased and none of the software like imagine if zoom when they had the hand raising feature it made a little like plunk audio sound or something mm -hmm. and you were just like okay every raise your hand if blah 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 and you would just be able to tell by the volume of the little pitter patter response instead of having to like what do you do you can't even use the hand raising feature for that it's like the wrong this weird skeuomorphic thing but it's actually inappropriate because i can't even take a poll of the room with a hand raising feature <laughs> so it's like every piece of software is a bit like that across have you seen i recurse sender i think was had built something like this where for their programs their cohorts they had some sort of 2d dungeon crawler style uh, yeah where you i've seen a few, i've seen a few of those things it's cool that they built their own yeah um there's something to, there's something to that uh and i remember right when COVID hit there were some of these fun spatial audio style meeting things i forget there was one i really liked where you could like drag your own avatar around and there's like a Doppler effect type of thing is that you get closer to someone else. And so you could be like, ah, and then just drag your own avatar like past theirs and they would hear you as if you were running by. And, you know, okay, that's like an interaction that who, who knows what fruit it'll bear, but that's it's like interesting at least. So Jesse, uh, I know you're very thoughtful about a lot of pieces of the experience, but uh, I think I'm most interested in the curriculum decisions um, that you made. Oh, sure. uh, I mean, maybe maybe you just don't think that they're as important as some of the other like cultural and oh. uh, physical aspects of the of the program. But I'm curious, like, uh, how did how did you decide upon the scope of the program? Like, obviously, you needed to cut a lot out. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it was a standard. A typical, I don't know, standard, whatever, with backwards design. I mean, we started with imagining what the ideal junior software engineer was like, or like high, low, junior, junior plus, first non-junior role. What is that ideal person like? And then how do we do everything in our power to give them the right combination of knowledge, skills, and attitudes and habits? So, so was, what is the ideal junior engineer like? Well, I because think it's. I feel like the debates, the debates out, and also like <laughs> even if there were a decision, everyone's going to approach that that objective differently, and then right. they like manifest the kind of um, the the outcomes. Yeah, if I can use that word of the existing boot camps are highly variable. Of course, even if they purport to aim for the same thing. So, what was that to you? Well, what well, is that to you now? I, I think ultimately it's an ability to, I mean, what's going to happen with a junior engineer at most companies? Most companies don't have, and this maybe has changed over time. I don't think it really has. Like, for example, they don't really have a structured onboarding process. And so there's an expectation that they will simultaneously be orienting themselves in a very unfamiliar situation uh, while being proactive in terms of looking for problems to solve and also proactive in terms of asking questions that need to be asked and not doing things like being stuck, deciding I'm going to work on this ticket, spending a week and a half on it to no avail without ever uh, kind of getting feedback before, uh, you know, before that. So I think it's, you know, we want people who are ready to, I, I would guess, just like raise their hand and say, I'm, I'm up for it. Um, Was there any challenge in designing curriculum for that or thinking through that? Because I feel like half the students in the boot camp might be doing a career switch versus some might be like fresh out of college. So you have some folks who have been in the quote unquote corporate environment in some way, right. maybe have learned that, but then others, I know in my case, there were a bunch of people who had just completed college and just thrown themselves into this. And they were you know, very different from me. I was six years or seven years into working at two or three different companies at that point. 
Yeah, they, well, over time, you know, the, those first few kill horse that really was like the Wild West. I mean, who says yes to a, pro, a totally unproven program, move across the country? Omar. <laughs> Omar. Yeah. Omar was on the tail end of the of what I would call the Wild West period. He was he was in the first or second cohort where things were really um like the hatches had been battened down a bit. Mm. Uh the first two or three cohorts were it felt like every day we were just trying to keep the ball in the court <laughs> a little bit. Uh for better or worse. And I, the median age lowered over time. So the median age that first year was people, it was like in the low thirties. So it was almost all people looking to switch careers. There were some exceptions, but the exceptions tended to be some kind of extreme outlier. Like I'm a 17 year old who doesn't even want to go to college and I don't care. I just want to learn how to program or I want to learn how to code to launch my own startup. And I mean, we actually had a student who did this at you, but you know, or, you know, Alyssa, right. Honest, you know, yeah, actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cause I know miles, uh, helped her out a bunch too, but she yeah, company's doing great now. I think. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Hip camp. Um, oh, sweet. And yeah, she was working. That was uh, her, one of her, that was her final project at the bootcamp. Uh, Damn. And she, I forget what cohort she was in. I think the second one, actually. And she just showed up and was like, we were like, wait, it took us a while. We were like, wait, who are you? Why are you here? Hmm. Um, and we didn't just let her in. I forget what we did. Uh, but I think we told her, no, we can't just let you. <laughs> Uh, uh, actually, I'd, I'd have to ask her to remember. I forget if we let her attend that cohort or we asked her to come back write, and write the reduce function or something in JavaScript. No, I, <laughs> but or come back for the net for the next cohort. I think she might have done that one, but it was a bit like, okay, just understand this is an exceptional situation, and um, you know. We're, you have to be prepared for us to pull the plug on you if this winds up being not the right call. But it was it was the right call. Jesse, but, a recurring theme of this conversation we've had is the just show up model. Yeah, it, it tends to have some extremely good outcomes. It does. It was kind of nuts, though. I mean, she just walked in with the line of students and they're like, hey, everybody. <laughs> and we just who are you? What are you doing here? Um, and I forget if she'd interviewed or not. But that sort of student became less and less common over time. They became people who were either graduated college, but, you know, oh, if, if I decided I didn't like my major my sophomore year instead of my senior year, I might have switched majors, but I couldn't, that sort of thing. So, you know, we, we try to draw on people's prior professional experience, I mean, to your point. It's much easier to have that kind of conversation about, like, if you've seen that junior senior relationship play out in your prior role or in adjacent roles, it's much easier to just be like, hey, you've seen how that can go well. You've seen how that can go poorly. Here's what that looks like for an engineer. Um, and it takes less convincing them that, let's call it that social dimension is important. Whereas the people right out of college, I mean, they've their idea of teamwork is a group assignment at a you know computer science lab or something. It's a yeah. bit of a joke. Yeah, uh, both of you have designed curriculums. I have not, but one thing I'm imagining is as you're sort of building the ship as it's going, you might recognize cohort to cohort that like, oh man, we forgot to. We should probably teach people about databases. So you like slide that in at this this uh, this section of the course, and then you do that next cohort. And it's like okay, that was a little bit too early for databases. Let me move the index card over. Was that, like, How did you model the sequencing uh, for walking people through that? Because it feels like uh, practically you have, to, you have to come up with some linear path in some way because these are, it's like, you know, the x-axis is time. But did you allow for forking maybe? Do, do you? Uh, maybe it, the, you don't, I don't know. The process was, well, the, met, the metaphor was always, not always, what we settled on was, you 
yes, there is a kind of main road and the progression of let's call it topics is somewhat linear. Um, but the, like on any given day, there was about twice as much as any student could realistically do of work we put in front of them. They, they, this is actually hard for the students who came right out of college who are very much used to like, if this is the work, we're expected to do all of it. And some of them would really, especially the superstar A students would really wrap themselves around the axle being like, I only got 40% of it done. Um, how on earth am I supposed to get it all done? It's like, you're not supposed to get it all done. Yeah, I At still least. haven't done N Queens yet. That's right. Outstanding <laughs> for me. So that was, I mean, that's one element. And then what are the big changes we made? So one is, I guess, focus on, try to focus on the things that uh, won't change. That'll be like, if there's a, if there's something that will be relevant, no matter what context they go on to interview at or what job they get, and we can make hay out of it, then that's the kind of thing we're going to make hay out of. So we tended to avoid a lot of, uh, people are surprised by this sometimes yes it's a rails boot camp in the nine week core students didn't get introduced to rails until week seven like they didn't touch rails i mean look they can do it on their own i guess and they probably did some of it before they went through a rails tutorial or something but they didn't touch rails until the last third of the program uh and it was much more about you know how can we make it so that rails feels like a breath of like an oasis in a desert. <laughs> I, so I sometimes feel this way about like, oh, should I, should I learn rust or should I learn C first so that I appreciate rust? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think, I think you, I mean, it's sort of like sometimes all you have to do with a student is give them a brief outline of the sort of problem that this thing would solve. And you can tell it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so it doesn't necessarily need a lot of justifying. Um, other times, you know, early on we had rails earlier, because this is one of these things. And it's like the students are drowning in uh, navigating like the form helpers to generate forms. But that's because they don't have a sense of what their target is. Like they don't have a picture in their head of what you want the form to even look like. They do probably, they don't even have a concept of these are just functions that are returning a string that contains HTML. And so they learned SQL before they did an ORM. Um, they wrote procedural code before they did object oriented code. Uh, they started with command line programs. And then they did networked programs and then they did web-based stuff. And in a lot of ways, it, it just like recapitulated history. And that's one way I would explain it sometimes is we just have the students reenact the history of programming, but at a thousand percent speed and minus uh, certain detours. An example of a decision we had to make that I was not sure about was like Rails at the time, and and I would say the broader web development ecosystem was getting really excited about CoffeeScript. Everyone loved CoffeeScript, and probably a quarter of the students were like CoffeeScript, CoffeeScript, and I was just like, no CoffeeScript, absolutely no CoffeeScript. <laughs> I'm like, if you want to use it, you can use it, I guess, but understand what you're doing is you're taking on project risk by trying to do something in a day using a technology you've never touched before. Yeah. Um, so there are a handful of decisions like that, but it's a bit like, look, if they know SQL well enough, ideally really well, then, and they have a, a con high level concept of what ORMs do, and they have enough concept contact with one, at least one representative ORM, They'll be able to look at like SQL alchemy code and understand what's going on, even if they don't understand Python. It's not going to be a mystery to them if we've done our job. I have so much that I want to talk to you about, uh, Jesse, in, in relation to this, because I wonder um, 
Well, let me firstly say, like, I take the same approach of the historical reenactment, and I also feel like uh, we absolutely should not start with a foregone conclusion of this. We should motivate some of the more powerful or uh, high-level abstractions that they will end up using. But I feel like I'm in a privileged position of working with folk who have had exposure more to the high-level abstraction than the low-level abstraction and are in a place in their careers where they are excited to, they have the appetite to peel back the layers. I mean, one of the courses that we teach, we just call software systems behind the abstractions. It's just like, you've been using this in front of the abstraction, now look behind (laughs) the abstraction. And it's like, here's Wireshark, here's S-Trace, here's even thinking about the kernel like behind the system call, here's even what a system call is. And and we're, we're doing this with people who are already motivated to, to do that, I feel like, because they have enough, almost too much orientation. Mm-hmm. It's like the other day, Elliot taught a class where, I, I kid you not, this is one of the most popular classes that either of us teaches uh, based on student ratings. And it involves hand traversal of a Postgres B plus tree in Hexta. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> so it's like we've, talk, we've spoken about indexes in, in theory. You all know the best practices of whatever, slap an index on it if it's slow. Done. Now let's literally yeah. like look at the index file, bye, 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 and hex them. But we can do that because they have had five years of experience of being frustrated with just slapping an index on it when it seems slow. There is an appetite for understanding how it actually works. And so we can almost overcompensate. Like how many people in the world can hand traverse a B tree and hex them? Um, like it's not, it's not a skill that we want them to develop. It's just like expo- exposing them right, to the right. ability to go that far if they want. So all this is to say, I, I've always felt like we're selecting for people who are excited to do this at a time in their careers where they're excited to do this. And that's a function of them already seeing the high level stuff. So I wonder for you, like, is, was it an aspect of selecting students for the cohort? Was it like, um, uh, uh, fostering the motivation that they came in with is it the short period of time like i, I guess I'm, I'm trying to say how do you get away with starting from the lower level thing and only introducing rails in seven weeks or another way of putting it like a lot of people struggle with mathematics because it's kind of like 12 years of building up to calculus sure. you know right it's like if you just gave them a taste of the calculus that they could do maybe that would motivate more people along the way well, that's really it, I think, which is, it, I mean, abstractions are powerful because they have like the, the powers in their generality, which means the powers in a number of situations where they have a role to play, which means if it's actually a powerful abstraction, as you go through the normal course of business, there should be no shortage of opportunities for you to be able to point at the thing if you if you constrain the problems in the right way, using to talk about B trees, for example, a, a standard way that that kind of thing comes up before they even get to SQL is we have them build a to-do app on the command line and we emphasize separation of concerns and the law of Demeter and just, it's as much about those principles per se as it is about having them organize their own thoughts as they approach the problem. But, uh, you know, invariably the way they do it is they like read the text file into memory, manipulate it to memory and write it all out. And it's like, great. Some students, they sort of get to the end of that just in the nick of time. Um, or the feedback is more about the heart of that material, which is about the object oriented stuff and getting more exposure to the command line and so on and so forth. But other students, it's not a big deal. And you can, you say, okay, well, this is how your program's working here. Here's an example to-do list that has 13 million items in it. Uh, Your program's awful slow now. Let's talk about, well, you know, give me some ideas for how you can make this faster. If you want to sort, print it out and sort it this way or sort it that way. And it doesn't take much probing for them to come up something that is within striking distance of uh, a B plus tree. At which point you can say, by the way, 
This is something called a B plus tree. Uh, yada yada. If they're if they're into it at that moment in time, by all means, elaborate on it. But I think there are lots of opportunities to draw students into those higher level concepts sooner rather than later. I think the 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 problem is when the the process of learning is conceptualized as like okay well if we're gonna if we're going to cover b plus trees then there has to be a b plus tree unit that starts at a defined point in time that every student has to have a certain level of prior knowledge for them to even to be able to understand the lecture uh and but also if it's a lecture that means probably we're going to be I mean, it's so many layers removed from like actual code. It's going to be like diagrams and stuff. And you have to think about, you know, maybe pseudocode if you're lucky, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, that's, you know, pulling that off in a way that where it lands and so on and so forth is that's hard. It's hard to do. Um, and I think you just, you don't do that. You just, you try to design the material so that when you see there's an opportunity for a student like this student is the kind of student who would be well served by pointing out this connection here and now because this connection is here and now. And maybe that connection, they'd already passed 10 other instances of it and the instructor just decided it wasn't worth pointing out for whatever reason. Like the student was stressed. They felt like they were behind in time. They're panicking. You know, a student in that frame of mind, it probably isn't good to go, okay, great. You got the to-do app done. Let's talk about B plus trees. No, you're gonna they'll send them into a tailspin if you do that. So but, did yeah. you did you practically do that? Did you have your instructors sort of keeping these notes on people as they went along to 100 percent Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and the curriculum was designed, I mean, it was the beats were mostly around like everything was designed to get students to generate feedback worthy code. And without falling into the trap of having like some pre prescribed solution in mind. Uh, like we want the student to actually be able to make an earnest attempt using their own judgment, not just fill in the blanks or do what they think we want them to do, but not have it be so all over the place that it becomes impossible. Like it's realistically, you can't, if you have 50 students and each student has their own unique little approach to the problem, you're not going to be able to give 50 unique pieces of feedback. But but more than that, you lose leverage because now the students, it's harder for them when they're talking to each other to even reconcile their different approaches, right? So it's this balance between, there's like some variability that isn't good and there's other variability that is, I think, at the heart of what drives the um, the learning experience. And, you know, we could we could clock things like by the fourth, day of the second or the third went by the Wednesday of the second week probably 80 percent of the students are going to be writing um functions or methods that have three or more four five six positional arguments and you know yeah so then there can be little tactical things to drive the point home about why this isn't a great idea you walk over to a pair who wrote this oh Charlie wrote this Turn off the monitor, Oz. What's the what's the fifth argument to this function? And Oz is like, uh, I don't. And you said, okay, that's the point. All right. And, and then you, in the afternoon, you do a lecture on named arguments, and it makes sense. You you like you, you know that everyone's ready for it. But also, we design it so that roughly it's like that Wednesday plus or minus a day. We know all the students are going to be ready for that talk because the material's been designed to push them towards you know, making the honest kind of mistake someone would make if they understood the assignment, but didn't know what named arguments were and only understood positional arguments. Did you have any, that feels Socratic to me in, in so far as you have the, the wise teacher walking around and probing and asking questions. Was that, was that, is that such a natural way of teaching that, uh, or was that something that you're like, oh, we want our teachers to be actively doing this? How pedagogically, uh, like, direct were you in thinking about this stuff? Oh, you have to know, I mean, it, it really depends on the student. Like yeah. if you can 
to use, I'll use Omar as an example, since he was on the podcast previously. Uh, you know, he was the kind of student where I learned very quickly, I can make a high level, almost like meta point, and he'll understand it more or less as I intend it to be understood. And like, I'm not looking to, and I wouldn't encourage any instructor to be Socratic for the sake of being Socratic. Like if, if you can give a straightforward piece of feedback, um, and be confident that the student will uh, understand the lesson as you intend it, as opposed to like, oh, well, I better not name my variables like this or I'll get points knocked off or something like that. Yeah. Uh, then, of course, you. I mean, it's just a waste of time to play some Socratic game. Um, and I tend to fall... Uh, you also have to allow for variability among the staff and their personalities and their temperaments. Like, especially if you're hiring people who, for the most part, are professional software engineers, you can't ask them to all teach in the same way. That'll drive them nuts. They're, they're experienced people who have years of professional judgment and um, it'd be like asking a team of engineers to all write code the same way. They'd go bonkers. So, you know, we, you need to allow room for that. There were teachers who basically refused to give a lecture. Okay, maybe that's too much. Um, there were teachers who were afraid to be one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two with the student because they get really anxious about the possibility that uh, uh, a student might ask them a question that they don't know the answer to. You have to net yes, just yeah, just yeah, you have to find a way to make all of that uh all of that work. And the, the easiest way, I think, is this is again why it's easier to do this in person. If everyone's kind of bouncing around and you're never going too long without seeing what's going on, then it's hard for things to get too out of control. Like a student basically has to go hide somewhere for you not to see them. Like we're all in the same space. I have a question that's also going to be advice for me. I can ask you the question, but maybe I should also set it up a little bit. The question is, uh, does this kind of approach, philosophy, uh, lead to insufficient structure for a lot of students? At least the perception of structure. Yes, I, I would. The latter, I would say. I, I mean, we, I, I did it this way with my college students too, and it was funny. They basically had the college students demand a level of explicit structure that was they like overwhelmed me. Their demands, and I had a group that that pretty much mutinied. They were like show. They really wanted a layout of like what was happening on any given day for the entire program, beat by beat. Never never mind the fact that some days we're calling an audible <laughs> or something serendipitous might happen. And also my feeling of what is knowing what is coming on for like four weeks from now, how is that going to help you at anything this week? Nothing. It's not, you're not going to use that information to do anything except ask me a question about why we're learning this thing in four weeks. And it's honestly a distraction, but they mutinied and I showed them the spreadsheet of like kind of the score, so to speak, of, of how things are going to be introduced and when and where the points of variation are. And one of the students went, oh, my God. You mean my this entire time, my life has been being run by a spreadsheet? And I was like, yes. <laughs> So we try to create it's this picture of it feeling a bit uncontrolled or serendipitous, but it is it's less there's 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 more structure than I think meets the eye for the students. They there's do always, feel there's always a spreadsheet. There's, there's there. always a spreadsheet, yeah. and they and they do feel this is a double edged sword. It's like, 
you know, as I'm sure you've experienced this, you, there's something you want students to learn and you give a talk about it and then you have them go off and try and implement it. And you can tell that you just spent an hour or whatever saying a bunch of stuff, illustrating a bunch of stuff that <laughs> it's not, they're like, they're just, they're not really connecting the dots mm. that uh, they aren't recognizing the things they're supposed to recognize. They're not um, implementing the strategies you maybe ask them to implement. And you wind up having to give them a bunch of feedback that more or less just echoes the stuff you had talked about beforehand. Um, but if you flip it where you kind of have the students go out and take a stab at it and then like come back and then give a talk and then maybe have them go out again and try something, you know, round two, they very often will feel like you've, and this is more of a cultural thing, but they'll, a, a non-trivial percentage of students will feel like you set them up for failure, you know, that you're messing with them. You're asking me to do stuff, but you haven't given me a talk about how to install a Ruby gem, but you're asking me to install a Ruby gem. Why haven't you introduced that yet before it's in an exercise? Um, I don't know. Have you, has, has that, have you had that experience, Oz? Oh, absolutely. All the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's gotten to the point where for CS Primer, I'm basically just trying to select for people who have at least some appetite for the struggle. And uh, I'm just trying to make it very clear that uh, I feel like this is my my presentation of how one ought to learn this stuff uh, that you should be programming to learn computer science and sometimes it's going to feel a little harder than you're used to and sometimes a little easier and there's just going to be this like a uh, gradual struggle towards success and that this is that this is ideal but if you feel like i'm sending you up for failure here uh there are <laughs> other places where you can go and and just watch the lecture right um and i've tried to make a compromise by for instance actually having work solutions where other problem sets, if you think of it as a problem set and work solutions, others admit the work solutions. And I might also say, here are some hints, here is a base goal and stretch goals. And so I'm not, I'm not saying like, it is just, uh, you ought to struggle as much as possible. Uh, but there's, there's one thing that I feel like I can't work with. And that is coming in with the mindset that, uh, any struggle is a sign of, uh, failure or, uh, a step towards failure, failure of the instructor or of the individual. I feel like I do not have the tools to to work with that, and right. I do see that all the time. And um, at the moment, I'm just trying to make it clear what I'm what I'm offering. Uh, yeah, I'd like yeah. to I'd like to have a better answer for that. I think I've spoken to you about this a couple of times before, um, in different in different forms. But we spent a lot of time. At, I mean, I have every for my place I've taught in the last decade now, geez, uh, kind of actively uh, recoding students' relationship with struggle and confusion. Um, I think um, the Edward Nigma in the background is making me think of the why do we why do we fall Master Wayne uh, line from Batman Begins to pick ourselves back <laughs> yeah. up. Yeah, you want to remind us that. Yeah, it's a it's a balancing act because not all struggle is productive struggle, and it's like part of the teacher's job is to get students struggling in a productive way, and then you demonstrate to them the fact that it paid dividends that you didn't anticipate for it to pay enough they start to get the message at the, at the very least they step back from this attitude of like well it should never feel like this um and i will say actually this that that often happens with people who have uh more professional experience because they come in with someone who's really good at something else they step into 
learn something new intensely from start to finish if and if they've never done something like that before from scratch it's a bit like they they haven't been in that position for you know 10 15 20 years maybe and they're not used to feeling like they don't know what they're doing and it's hard for them to orient themselves and it just feels like wrong like i shouldn't feel like this this needs to stop now as opposed to seeing it as uh this is what i'm here to do yeah or yeah it's, it's just it's a signal it's a signal that's telling you something and it's actually many signals layered on top of each other if you lean into it a bit and part of our job is to structure the experience so that most of the time the struggle is productive versus not speaking like, of signals i'm getting many signals i need to exit oh the call God. right now um uh, jesse it was amazing meeting you i feel like uh we should continue this yeah absolutely okay all right bye-bye okay let's go okay bye-bye <laughs>